0: You got your Bibles? You can open them up to uh, Luke chapter twenty-four. We are in the last home stretch of this beautiful gospel that we've been working through for so, such a long time, and the Lord's been using it to bless us and to refine us. He's been using it to grow us, and just as we praised Him by singing songs to His name, we also praise Him now by stilling our mind and by thinking about the Scripture that He is opening up before us, and by considering it His Holy Word and by recognizing it as His perfect proclamation of who He is and what He wants for us. So we continue worshiping Him now as we put our eyes on Scripture. And as we soften our hearts and receive these things with humility, thankful that the Lord wants to train us and, and grow us up as His daughters and sons so that we might walk in the great testimony of His truth. Last week we, uh, we live-streamed our Easter services into our fellowship hall just in case we were too full in here and uh, we've done that a few times for special services, and our tech, tom, uh, tech team, I want to thank them for doing just a great job of correcting some of the problems we had before. Uh, we had we had an issue a couple of Sundays ago where we tried to live stream up there, and we had some issues with our Wi-Fi, and, and, and all of you know the, the deep frustration that comes when you're trying to watch a video and it buffers, right? And you've got, whether it be that little hourglass that flips over a hundred million times before you can see what you're trying to see or that little circle thing that keeps spinning. Buffering is so frustrating when, when the information that is coming across the, the bandwidth is too much and it slows down and it's trying to catch up and it's, it's not quite up to speed. That can be so frustrating to us. It drives us crazy. And as we meditate on the events that have happened since the cross, the minds of the people are in a sense. Buffering, They are struggling to keep up with this revelation that they cannot comprehend these truths that are beyond the natural world that they're so comfortable with. And so they're trying to make sense of the death of their Messiah. Even though he had warned them ahead of time that in order to save them, he needed to give his life for them, they couldn't come to grips with that. To, to them, he was this king, this mighty Redeemer who is going to stand upon the throne and rule Israel again and redeem national Israel and redeem geographical Israel and make it once again a place of God that was not ruled by Romans or any other empire. And so to see him die at the hands of the Romans was baffling. They could not comprehend how this was victory for the Lord. And so they're struggling to believe that victory has been won on the cross, they feel defeated. They feel loss at the death of Christ. And we've talked some last week about how they're not expecting the resurrection. How these women who came faithfully on that third day, on the Lord's Day, to, to anoint the body of Jesus didn't come to find a risen Savior. They came to anoint a deceased Savior. And yet He has surprised them with an empty tomb. And so there is this, this strange lag in the minds and the processing power of the humans who are involved in this whole story. They can't quite catch up to what Jesus is doing. And so as Jesus continues to reveal his risen self, reality is going to slowly begin to come into better focus for these disciples. So we're going to be reading a large portion of Scripture today. We're not going to read it all in one chunk. We're going to take it a bite at a time. So I hope your Bible will just be open to you there before you. We'll also have verses up on the screen, but we love for you to have your word open so that you can see these are not just words we're making up for you. These are the eternal testimonies of Scripture. So we're starting in verse 13 of Luke 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So, as we read this, this passage, as we begin this, this trip from Jerusalem to Emmaus, it's about a seven mile journey. What day is it? It is still Sunday. It is the Lord's Day. The day the women found Jesus' tomb empty, the day that Peter ran back after they had come and testified to the eleven disciples, he ran back to see with his own eyes that the tomb was in fact empty. And yet he marveled without quite believing that that meant Jesus was alive again. He's still trying to figure out what this means. There seemed to be evidence that Jesus might have been risen from the dead, but they were still not quite ready to commit their hearts to that truth and celebrate his resurrection. In this beloved story of of Jesus revealing himself in a resurrected form to these two travelers, Luke tells of these disciples in the midst of all the confusion of Jesus' death and his possible resurrection. These two disciples decided to take a journey back to what was probably their hometown, Emmaus. It was a seven mile journey and they were going by foot. Now these two individuals are met on the way by a stranger who we will see as the story unfolds is really no stranger after all. He is in fact the risen Jesus Christ in bodily form but they are not able to see that at first. Their blindness is not the result of their lack of attention. It is not the result of Of emotional negligence, not so wrapped up in their broken hearts that they're just not even paying attention. That's not the case here, although they have experienced some traumatic things. There are powers at work beyond their control. In some way, the Lord God is preventing them from recognizing just who Jesus is. He is veiling their eyes, and He's doing it for a reason. Again, verse 16 their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. That's a passive. It's not like they're ignoring Him. It's not like they're caught up in something else. It's that God is literally not allowing them to realize that this is Jesus speaking to them. Is Jesus being deceptive? Is this, is this a, a mild form of lying on His behalf? You know, much of what mankind needs to know about God is obvious, or is not obvious, rather, to human intellect. It has to be revealed to man. God is in no way being deceptive by revealing things a bit at a time. In fact, there are some things, some foundational truths that need to be understood first before other truths will make any good sense to the mind of a human being. So Jesus knew that these disciples would benefit from some dialogue, some some processing time, if you will, some buffering, that, that could help them really embrace the fact, the reality, that Jesus is alive. So he held some of the details back, until they had a chance to think through these very important things that would impact the way they received Him. And does not God do this to us throughout the history of of, of redemption? When you look at the Scripture of God, we don't have the full story in the first book. We don't have the full story in the second book or, or the 20th book. What we have is one story that is progressively revealed to us over time. And God in His mercy gives us a little more And a little more and reveals another layer and peels back some more truth so that we can, as we journey through this history of God saving His people, we can gain more and more knowledge and build upon the foundations that He has laid for us until we understand with good clarity. As early as the very first sin that was committed by Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, God reveals in part that He has a plan to overcome their failure. Even as he is laying down punishment to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent in chapter 3 of Genesis, he's laying down punishments for their disobedience. He even mentions there, just briefly, he says that by the seed of woman, man would come who would crush the head of the serpent, would bruise his head, and that the heel of that man would, have, would be bruised as well by the action of crushing the serpent. And he doesn't tell us it's Jesus, He doesn't bother to say, this is my son who I'm sending to you. He doesn't say there's going to be a death, a burial, and a resurrection. But he's laying a foundational truth. He he is giving us a glimmer of the great hope of salvation that he will work for us in his timing. And then as the scripture goes along, more and more scripture reveals some of the details of that. And, And as we look back on the road that we have traveled so far through scripture, we can see so many evidences that all the things that Jesus taught and did and showed us were fulfillments of the signposts that God had planted for his people along the way. There would be time for all of that to be revealed, but it was not yet time. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, verses 3 through 4, when he says, In the same way also we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, but when the fullness of time had come... You notice that phrase, the fullness of time? God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So so God has had this idea, this picture of salvation from the very beginning. He knew that He would send His Son, Jesus Christ. Even before Adam drew his very first breath, God knew it. He knew that Adam would fail. He knew that Eve would fail. He knew that we all would. And that in order for us to be redeemed, he would have to show us true victory. And so in the fullness of time, when, when the world was ready for it, when when it pleased the Lord to do so, he revealed Jesus, the Son. And that, that picture that was we got a glimpse of in Genesis 3 became a reality. So because these two travelers needed instruction to understand the resurrection as the fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus hid his identity from them. He veiled it, but only for a time. Now, continuing on in, in Luke 24, verse 17. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, and they looked sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus has concealed his identity to these travelers and the identities of the travelers themselves are not completely revealed to us, are they? Uh, In verse 18, we're only told the name of one of these two individuals. The one that we do know is a man named Cleopas and the vast majority of what we know of this man we learn from this very story in Scripture. There has been a great deal of speculation uh, by biblical scholars about who that second person might have been. Some have guessed that maybe it was Luke himself. It was not uncommon for people who were writing about events that happened to kind of neglect to put their own name in the story as a sense of of, of humility to show that they were not writing their story to exalt themselves, but rather to tell God's story. They might happen to play a small part in it. You see that a lot in John's Gospel, as he often calls himself, not John, but the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, because he's trying to be humble. He's trying to to not exalt his own name. So maybe this was Luke traveling with Cleopas, and that's perhaps why he knows the details of this this wonderful small story. Some early church fathers actually testified that the second person was James, the half-brother of Jesus. There are others who have claimed that the unknown traveler was Simon Peter. If that were true, it would explain a later verse, verse 34 of chapter 24, where it says that Jesus... Uh, appeared to, to Simon Peter personally. We don't have any other account of that happening, so perhaps this is that personal account that is spoken of. Lately, the, the kind of interpretation du jour is that perhaps the traveler was Cleopas's wife. There is a verse in John where one of the ladies who came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus was the wife of Clopas, which is very similar to Cleopas, so some people think maybe there was a clerical you know, error there. Maybe there's two ways of spelling it. And perhaps this is the woman who came to the tomb with Mary Magdalene and the other Marys to anoint the body of Jesus. You know, ultimately, friends, the Lord knows what we need to know and what we do not need to know about his scripture. And for reasons known only to him, the identity of the second traveler is still by and large a mystery to us. So we don't spend our time wisely trying to guess and to make up theories about who this second party was when in reality, if if we needed to know, God would reveal it to us. Cleopas is the one who does the speaking and so we're going to talk primarily of him as we look at this story in depth. Jesus is the one who initiates the conversation. He engages these two as they travel upon the road to their destination. Cleopas and his companion, whoever it is, are having a significant discussion as they walk that road. And Jesus inquires as to the topic of their conversation. The word in the, in the Greek for conversation or discussion here is antibalein which is a word that doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. It's an interesting word. It means to throw back and forth. So what it means is they are throwing ideas back and forth, trying to make sense of what they witnessed. They don't get it. It doesn't fit into their mindset. So they're trying to, it's almost like if you've seen a really complicated movie and afterwards you can't help but sit there with the other person and say, what did we just watch? You know, how, how did that really end? Did they get the bad guy in the end? I still don't know. And so they're, they're going back and forth about is Jesus risen? Is he not risen? What do we do now? How should we respond to all that we have witnessed? And when Jesus asks what they're talking about, he, he gets a physical reaction from the disciples. They stop in their tracks. When he mentions, hey, what are, you, what are you talking about here? And they stop, and they have to explain themselves. They, they look physically sad to him. I mean, they, it weighs heavy on their hearts. These things that have transpired are not just news to them. It's their very life. They are disciples. They are followers after Christ, and now their master's dead, and they don't know what to do, and so they are wearing their heart on their sleeves, so to speak, Their disposition conveys the overwhelming emotions that have bombarded them through these last three days. The thing that they hoped and trusted would happen did not happen the way they thought it would. Rather than having a king who is now assembling an army of Israel and and pushing the Romans out of the Holy Land and retaking it for the Lord God, rather than seeing these things happen, their dear friend has been tortured and crucified and put to shame In a public way. (coughs) So they don't know what to believe or do in light of what they've heard. So Jesus asks them to clarify, and in verse 18, Cleopas answers, and he answers somewhat rudely. He says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And since he's referring to Jerusalem there, we can assume that these two, as they were walking the road, did not meet Jesus head to head, but rather he came and caught up with them because they assumed he was in Jerusalem as they were. So he is caught up to them, and they're astounded that this man who was in the same place that they were has not, has not heard the news. Everybody's talking about this. How can you not know the news? I imagine if they would have recognized this man as Jesus, they would have not spoken to him in such short terms. And Jesus, who obviously already knows what has occurred, intends to draw out their perspective on the events that have taken place. By asking them to explain this news, Jesus effectively draws a confession of belief from them. And that confession proves to be very problematic. Cleopas shares that Jesus of Nazareth had been in Jerusalem. And this is not just a man, but a prophet who had exhibited mighty deeds and faithfully preaching the word of God to Israel. Now that seems like a positive confession, of who Jesus was, a a good report about Jesus' power, that he was a preacher and that he was was sent of God. But it also represents a change in attitude and reveals much of the reason why these two disciples are so sad, why they are so depressed. Consider the testimony of Peter, chapter 9, that we studied uh, some months back. When Jesus approaches his 12 disciples, this is long before the cross, and uh, he, just, he approaches them and asks them some important questions. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? In other words, Jesus had, 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 was aware of the fact that many people were talking about him, that he was a, a topic of conversation, that he was kind of trending at the time. And he wants to know what people think of him. And so the disciples, they respond. And they answered, John the Baptist? But others say, Elijah? And others say that that you are one of the prophets of old who has risen. And they said to him, that he said to them rather, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Peter gave what we call the good confession. He said, you know, I'm not, I'm not caught up with all the rumors and, and things. We don't believe that you're just some prophet. We believe you're the Christ. That means the anointed one. You're the promised Messiah that Israel's been waiting for all this time. We believe that you're the one who's going to fulfill all of these scriptures that we have been holding on to for hundreds of years. We think you're the one. The disciples had at one point been very confident that the man they were following was none other than the one that God had promised. However, in the light of the apparent defeat that Jesus suffered at the hands of Israel's own leaders, the disciples have apparently, in their minds, downgraded what they think of Jesus. He is now not the Christ of God. These two disciples confess him as just another prophet, just another man who intended well and spoke the powerful words of God, but who was rejected by his people and put to death. Verse 21, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. That's verse 21. We had hoped. In other words, we hope no longer, or we are struggling to hope what we hoped before. Let us pay close attention to this account, brothers and sisters, because there may very well be a time in your own life when the high hopes that you had in Jesus, when the strong faith that you held in Him collide with the hard realities of life. We trust in Him, and sometimes we sing songs like, I am counting every blessing that God has given to me, but there will be a day when it's difficult to count, and when you will lose track and you will feel as though there are no blessings. And you will feel as though the God that you trust in may not be hearing you, may not be providing what you need. There are times when we struggle in our faith. And we have a hard time seeing God as that all-powerful redeeming that He promises to be. And so let us, let's pay close attention to this story, folks, because here we have disciples like us who are struggling with their confession and their testimony. There is more to the story, of course, and and Cleopas continues to share the most recent details of what has transpired. He says in verse 22, if you'd like to read along, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Cleopas has recounted the difficult struggles that the disciples have experienced as they won, as the one that they had hoped would be the chosen one of Israel had endured cruelty and shame and had put to death by the Roman soldiers and breathed his last. Though there is an incredible sense of defeat, there are also some details of that story that have left a glimmer of hope for the disciples that perhaps it's not entirely over after all. The body of Jesus is not in the tomb. So the evidence of his death is no longer before them. But the thing that they want to see, the thing that they believe will really prove to them that Jesus is alive is the physical risen body of Jesus. And they did not find Him at the tomb. Verse 24 said, So some of them who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. That's what they want. They want that physical evidence that Jesus is risen. And do you catch the irony of this? The thing they are lamenting that they don't have, this physical proof, is standing in front of them. They're literally having a conversation with the risen Jesus, and they're essentially saying that if we could just see the risen Jesus, we'd believe, and here he is. But he is veiled to them. They cannot see it. For the believer, the presence and the nearness of Jesus is a constant reality whether we perceive it or not. Often when we cannot seem to see Jesus in the difficult circumstances of life that we are having to endure and go through, when we can't recognize His presence, when we can't identify it, with it, so I just don't feel that He's near to me, or I'm not seeing answers to my prayers the way I thought they would be answered, when we can't seem to see Him, He is always right beside us. Perhaps in hindsight, after we go through the events that God has ordained for us, we will be able to see some of the ways that he was walking step by step with us. We're able to wonder how we could be so blind so as to miss him. But when we're right in the thick of it, there are times when we feel like he is not near. Uh, there were times in my own life when I felt this. I served at my, my first church that I served at was a small church in Livermore where as hard as we prayed, and as much time and effort as we put into that work of God and we desired to see that church grow and we desired to see the hard hearts of some of the individuals there softened and, and grab on to the mission of God, we just did not see the progress we wanted to see. And I, I often went to bed at night just staring at the ceiling wondering, how am I supposed to interpret all this, God? Are you near to me? Are, are you working in my ministry? Or am I doing something wrong that has pushed you away? Where is Christ? And yet in hindsight... I value that stretch of my life as so vital to making me who I am today and by helping my wife and I learn to trust in Him and in Him alone and not be the kind of ministers that are only rejoicing when there are results and when we see numbers and when we see great, visible, and and obvious victories, but instead to to trust that Christ is working. And then in obedience, we follow His plan no matter how that brings consequence into our life, no matter how hard that might make our path that we just simply trust in Him and keep moving forward. And at this point, as Jesus is listening to them, though they still do not recognize Him as Jesus, He's still just a traveling stranger to them. He hears what they have to say, and then He openly rebukes them. These downhearted disciples, these depressed, gloomy ones who had followed after Christ They receive a correction from this stranger who doesn't even know them. He points out that they are foolish. Man is foolish. We we do not have the capacity to see the things that we need to see. As much as we like to count ourselves as the pinnacle of the food chain, as the last product of evolution, as the world likes to say, we are above all the other creation. We are still a pretty dense group of creatures, aren't we? We are foolish ones. We do not see what we ought to see. We see what we want to see. And often it is a complete mirage. And so he calls them foolish for their inability to recognize truth. And then he points out that they are also slow of heart to fully believe what the prophets have revealed to them. So knowing that man cannot discern the truth for themselves. The important parts have been revealed to us. God knows we're fools, and so He gives us the Word. He gives us the Scripture. He says, here, my sheep, look at what you need to see that you can't discover on your own. I will guide you. And yet we have said, nope, we got it. We'll do this on our own. We're going to walk our own path, Lord. We can figure this out. Our foolishness has caused us to turn a blind eye to the things He has revealed to us, the very tool He has given to destroy our foolishness and to help us be wise. These travelers are depressed and there's reason for their depression. We will become very vulnerable to disappointment when we choose to look at part of God's scripture but not the whole. Notice the emphasis that Jesus in veiled form here puts on all in verse 25 of chapter 24. It says, "'They were foolish not to believe "'all the prophets have spoken.'" In verse 27 of the same chapter, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself, where? In all the scripture. We cannot afford, friends, to look at the word of God as a nice document that we might find some good quotes in every once in a while. That if we flip through, maybe we'll find a verse or two that will warm our heart and give us some inspiration. That cannot be what this word represents to us. It must be bigger than that. God has given us the word so that the whole of the word can guide our steps and direct our paths. Their fault was in focusing on parts of God's word but ignoring other parts. We do the same thing. They saw the promise of redemption. They saw the promise that the line of David would not be interrupted, that a king would rise up would redeem Israel, would restore the kingdom of God. They saw that and latched onto it. And then they didn't bother to read the other parts of scripture that described how God would do this miraculous feat. They overlooked the the, the scriptures that made it very clear that this one to come would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They overlooked the idea that he must be the pure spotless lamb that gives himself for Israel. They looked They overlooked all the imagery that had been given to them in the Old Testament sacramental system. They overlooked so much of what God had because that wasn't appealing to them. They liked the promises. So many of us want the blessings of God, but we don't want the responsibilities that He also calls us to, don't we? We want the Lord God to make us healthy and wealthy and wise, but we don't want Him to tell us, go work in the nursery, there's nobody else doing it. Go pick up that person who doesn't have a ride to church. Do it faithfully, they need to be there. You've been given a lot so that you could give part of it to that other person who's struggling right now. Go and share the blessing I've given. We don't want to see those parts because they don't directly bless us. I want victory in Christ. I want to be an overcomer, but I don't quite want to hear about this surrender business where I am called to be a bondservant of the Lord, where I surrender my heart and life to Him, And then he, as my sovereign king, directs and guides and instructs and corrects me. I want a place in heaven. I want to be where there's no sin and pain and heartache and trial. But I'm not so interested in personal holiness. If I'm going to belong in heaven one day, the scripture tells me that God's going to have to sanctify me. He's going to have to take the parts of me away from me that don't belong in a perfect place like heaven. So many of us just want the heaven, but we don't want the refinement that God uses to make us fit for heaven. These Jews wanted a king and a kingdom, but they weren't receptive to a servant king. They weren't receptive to one who would suffer and die and rise, and doing so win not only the physical battle against Rome, but the spiritual battle against our own enemy, sin, which dwells within us. I want us to to catch something very important here. Jesus could have at any moment said, oh, you need proof? Here are my hands. Here is my side. I am the risen Jesus. Believe. Be comforted. We have won the victory. He could have done that at any moment. But notice that he does not. Why does he not just show them that he's won the victory and that they have nothing to worry about? He doesn't because he's got a very, very important message to give to them. What does he do how does he train them to walk through these dark times and whatever dark times would become them in the days that lie ahead? He says to them, go to the word. He points them in the direction of the scriptures which should have prepared them already to experience what they've been experiencing. Friends, let us remember the words of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. How does God speak of His Word? He speaks of it in marvelous ways. We are to look at it as His great provision for us. And this mighty Word is not just there to inspire. It is like a sword, a two-edged sword, double-edged because not only will it cut out the wickedness of others, but it will also sever the wickedness of our own lives out of us. It will prune that wickedness out. With surgical precision, the word divides what belongs in us from what does not belong. It reveals our sin. It shows us the truth. We need the word of God and these men have been neglecting the truth, testimony of Scripture. Think of the words of, of the Apostle Paul as he preaches to us in 2 Timothy 2, verses 16-7 through 7, and says, all Scripture how much scripture? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do you believe, friends, that this book is enough? Do you believe that all that you need To step forward in faith and obedience is contained in the pages of these scriptures because God has said that's the the, the truth. He has said that is so. He has given us this word so that we would be thoroughly equipped to be complete people. If, If by the word we can be complete, that means we don't need anything else, do we? So the testimony of scripture itself is that the scripture itself is vital to us and it's why we should see it as our daily bread, our sustenance, our nutrients, what gives us the strength we need to carry on through every circumstance. Jesus doesn't want them to need the visual proof of his body because he will not dwell there with them forever, will he? He's shortly going to return to heaven to reign at the right hand of the Father. And so in love, he does not say, here are the holes. Here's the hole in my side. It is me, Jesus. Instead, he says, let's go through the scripture together. Let me give you the tools you're going to need to be encouraged when you're down. Let me give you the strength that you're going to need when you are weak. It is revealed truth that God has blessed you with and gifted you with. Let me teach you the scripture. And since all scripture is breathed out by God, how does Jesus show them the proof that he is indeed the Holy One? By using the part of scripture that so many New Testament believers erroneously believe is not relevant anymore. He didn't go to the book of Romans. It wasn't written yet. He went to the Old Testament. He went to Moses and the prophets. He went to the Psalms. He went to these scriptures that they knew, that they were familiar with. And he showed them things that they had not seen before. He showed them how the testimony of these words ever pointed forward to his mighty victory on the cross. I have no doubt that he showed them in the the Garden of Eden how God promised to bruise the head of the serpent With the heel of the son. And I'm sure he said, Jesus Christ is that seed of woman. I'm sure that he went through and found Abraham and Abraham's willingness to to testify to the Lord by giving his own son, Isaac, as a sacrifice if it was demanded of him. And I'm sure he said to them, listen, Isaac was just pointing forward to the true sacrifice that God would give his own son for us, for our redemption. I'm sure that he went to Isaiah and showed them the powerful scripture that showed the suffering servant and said, you've been hesitant to believe that's about the Messiah because it doesn't match your mentality, but that is the victorious king. The one who will serve and will suffer for you is the one. Jesus is that one. He probably went to Psalms 22 and showed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first line of that wonderful psalm that goes on to show that though it appeared that God's servant was being defeated, that there was actually victory in store for him. The Lord spoke to them from his word and taught them what they needed to see. They didn't need a sign. They didn't need some physical evidence. Here's what you need if you want to have faith in the Lord. You need to have a mind that knows the word of God and a heart that trusts it. That's what you need. You don't need somebody to perform a miracle before you. You don't need a handwritten invitation to follow after Christ. You need the scripture. You need to see that it's from his hands. I need you to trust That is good for you. It's exactly what Jesus gives to his disciples. What a blessed gift that he gives to them. And in verse 28, as we see the, the story unfold further, "...so they drew near to the village to which they were going." and he acted as if he were going farther but they urged him strongly saying stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent so they went in to stay he went in to stay with them and when he was at the table with them he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them so what Jesus is doing is he's he's physically interacting with them in fellowship he is spending time with these his disciples Again, they don't know who he is yet. They've seen enough of him to be drawn to the things that he says, but they're still not aware of what he, what, he, what he really represents. And as he breaks the bread, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So Jesus suggests that he will carry on down the road. He makes it appear as if he's got more distance to travel. But they basically beg him to stay, they don't want him to go. They're affected by him already, though they don't exactly know his identity yet. The Lord is working in their hearts. He's working towards salvation for them. And see what has just occurred, that Jesus has rebuked their foolishness, that he has called out their lack of faith in his scripture. Do they immediately react in defense of themselves? Are they offended by this correction that he gives? No. No. They are so moved by his correction that they invite him into the home to spend more time with them. Oh, church, that that we would have that same mentality, that same heart toward correction. That when somebody is brave enough to come to us and say, brother, sister, I see an error in your life. I see that you've strayed from the path. Let me help you go back to scripture and see where you're walking wrongly. Let us together work back towards the Lord in obedience to his word. And yet the heart of man is so twisted that whenever someone tries to do us good by showing us the error of our way, we often immediately respond with offense to them. We point out their sin. How are you coming to me? I see that you're a sinner too. You can't tell me there's something wrong with me. How dare you? Or we defend ourselves and make excuse after excuse as to why, oh, you're wrong. There's nothing wrong in me. You just don't understand the situation. These disciples might have been foolish, They might have misunderstood a lot, but give them this. When they were rebuked by this traveler upon the road, and he showed them their foolishness, and through scripture, corrected the way they were looking, they embraced it. Not only did they receive the correction, they received the one who was correcting them. They invite him into their home. They say, this is what we need. Help us more. We want to be humble before the Lord. If we're thinking wrongly, then correct that. Make it right. If it's embarrassing to us, so be it. We need to be right in this moment. We need you to teach us how to think and how to, how to react to this event that we've experienced. Do it by the scripture. May we rejoice when others love us enough to correct us or when God loves us enough to correct us as we read his word and see the error of our ways for ourselves. John the Baptist Cousin of Jesus had been filled with the Holy Spirit since he was conceived in the womb of his mother Elizabeth. He was spent, or well, he was sent, rather, to spend time preaching the gospel to the nation of Israel, which in so many ways had strayed from the Lord God. And his message was a message of rebuke. When he reached adulthood and began that public ministry, he called out to Israel. And his message was not a, a message of Encouragement, a message of, you're doing great, keep going. His message was a message of repentance. Israel, you are in sin. Correct what is wrong. Come to the Lord God. Humble yourself before Him. Be baptized for the remission of your sin. A bold wake-up call that their blood relationship with Abraham was not going to save them if they had no heart for the Lord God. John boldly proclaimed that their personal sin was ruining their relationship with the Lord. And no amount of religious obedience to the law of Moses could overcome that. That's not the kind of message that anyone wants to hear. It was an offensive message, a message that indicted the people and revealed things about them that they would rather keep hidden. And those who had gathered to hear John preached by the waters of the Jordan would have never made it to the waters of baptism if they had refused to stop And consider the words that John preached. Though harsh, though embarrassing, though critical and difficult to accept, some of them were able to see that they were in fact true words. And by faith they went forward and were baptized because they were not content to dwell in their sin. They wanted more than that. They wanted to be near to God. And it is at this point, friends, now Jesus reveals, having taught them the word, having shown them the error of their ways, having been received into their home despite his rebuke, having been invited to a closer fellowship, that Jesus finally lifts the veil and reveals his identity to these humble disciples. And for just a moment, they see before them their friend. This Messiah, this chosen one that they thought was dead, he has been speaking to them the whole time. Why does he wait until this moment to reveal himself? They needed to see the error of their expectations. They needed to understand that they were thinking wrongly about the Messiah. And so he wanted to correct that thought before he showed them this great, amazing hope that he was, in fact, alive. They needed to learn to trust the things that are unseen, rather the things that are, are seen. He wanted them to develop the skill of knowing that Lord's promises will be kept they don't need a sign. They don't need the physical presence of the Messiah. If God has promised to redeem them, he will make it so. And you need to be reminded that the word of God is sufficient for them. That as long as they have that testimony of scripture, then they have good hope Then they have a, a direction, a path upon which they can walk. And they needed to have a heart that received his authority and humbly accepted his guidance and his leadership. Friends, we experience true fellowship with him when we humbly approach him in prayer and seek him in his word. This is not the only time that Jesus meets someone upon a road, is it? The road to Emmaus is one example of travelers being interrupted upon their journey. They had somewhere they wanted to go, and Jesus had a different plan for them. These two, even though it was dark, remember they said to Jesus, Don't go further. Stay with us. It's too dark to travel. Once they see that Jesus is alive, what do they do? They put their sandals back on and they get out on the road even though it's nighttime. They've got to get back to Jerusalem. They've got to go tell their brothers and sisters that their Savior's risen indeed. They have to testify. But this is not the only story that involves a road and travelers, is it? We read in the book of Acts of Philip, one of God's faithful who was traveling into Samaria and comes across to carriage. And upon that royal carriage is a eunuch who represents authority from Egypt. He is a foreigner. And yet the Holy Spirit prompts Philip and he walks up and asks the man, what are you reading? He has a scroll open in in this carriage. And this wealthy man who didn't have to respond to him says, well, I'm reading the book of Isaiah. It's a Jewish scripture, an Old Testament scripture. That's what I'm reading. And he says, well, do you understand what it says? He says, how can I understand it? unless there is someone who can interpret it for me. And so Philip gladly steps up into that carriage with that eunuch and preaches the gospel of Jesus. From what? From the Old Testament. From the scriptures that God had provided. And he shows him, just as Christ has showed those two travelers on the road to Emmaus, showed them why they should believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means life to those who trust in him. We saw another interruption upon a road when Paul uh, decided, as a, or actually his name was Saul back then, when he decided to travel to a place called Tarsus, uh, or to, to Damascus, rather, so that he might persecute Christians, so that he might imprison some who were in the church. And he also is interrupted by somebody he doesn't at first recognize. The Lord Jesus Christ himself appears to Paul in a blinding light and tells him that he is kicking against the goads, that his idea of the kingdom of God is wrong and that he needs to let the Lord God correct that vision of the kingdom. He is humbled and made blind, and yet he doesn't push back and demand that he is in the right. He humbly receives this correction, and it changes the course of his life forever. Friends, we are all in process. We are people on journey. We walk through this world not exactly knowing where we are going, but God knows. And his great love for us causes him to reach down into this sinful world And by his love, take hold of our hearts and minds and show us that there is a more excellent way. We pray that as the Lord interrupts you, as he calls you to true discipleship, that you would find it in your heart to receive his correction with faith, that you would not push back against his rebuke, but that you would instead see that these are the wounds of a friend, that he cares enough for you, that he would love you by telling you the truth, that there is a great great danger to all of us that is called sin and that apart from Christ, that sin will kill us and will keep us separate from God forever in punishment if we do not have Christ. If you are on the road right now, consider how Christ might be interrupting your life. Why is the gospel being put in front of you with such force today? Why is the scripture revealing to you that perhaps you are seeing the world in the wrong way? We cannot have peace with God Until we submit to the Lord's description of who He is and what He wants for us. And the more we delve into the, the Word of God, the more we study His Scripture together, the more we seek Him in prayer, the more He corrects what is wrong in us and makes it right so that we too can be a people bound for glory. Would you close your eyes and pray with me as we thank the Lord for His Word.